listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle, and hi, everyone. Welcome to our year-end episode 262 and wrap-up of our COVID series, recorded live via Zoom on December 15th. We wanted to round out the year with a discussion looking forward and backward at nearly three years of life with COVID-19. We began reporting on the pandemic in early 2020, focusing on the plight of so-called essential workers and how the workforces, infrastructure, and politics surrounding basic public services like healthcare and education had been completely disrupted by COVID. And over the next two plus years, we examined other workers from multiple sectors who were also categorized as essential, from delivery workers to childcare providers, as well as those who are left out of the essential category for largely arbitrary reasons. And we discovered that whether they bore the label essential or not, all workers were struggling for stability, protection, and equity amid a public health crisis that had exacerbated just about every form of social inequality that had existed prior to March 2020. And the injustices amplified by the pandemic became even more apparent when many of those so-called essential workers, who had initially been lauded by politicians and the media for their selfless public service, found themselves still stuck in low-paying, undervalued jobs, often rife with racial and gender discrimination. To take stock of how the pandemic has changed the way we think about work and organizing, we invited two rank-and-file organizers, New York City schoolteacher Gia Lee and Chicago-based nurse Elizabeth Lalash, to an online panel to talk about the labor movement as we enter year three of the pandemic. Our guests were, unsurprisingly, really excellent, and we talked a lot about the ways that teachers and nurses in particular have become sort of Rorschachs for the whole pandemic. Teachers having to fight to close schools and keep them closed, teaching on Zoom, becoming heroes or villains, depending on who you're asking, and nurses being quickly declared heroes only to be denied care themselves as the pandemic wears on. We also heard about the use of formal and informal strikes by caring workers to demand safer conditions for themselves and the people they're responsible for. We opened up to audience questions after about 45 minutes of questions from Michelle and I, and we got some great questions from our listeners as well. If you appreciate our independent labor journalism and want to support our work, you can contribute to our small production team by going to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And one more announcement. This series marks a turning point for Belabored. We are saying goodbye to our longtime producer, Colin Kinneborough. And while we search for a new producer, we are taking a couple of months off for some well-earned rest and to plan for the coming year. We hope to have some exciting new projects to announce down the line, and we look forward to bringing you a new and improved belabored with more underreported labor stories in the spring. So we are going to introduce our two very special guests this evening. Elizabeth Lalash is a registered nurse based in Chicago. She's also a union steward and professional practice committee member with National Nurses United. And she has worked three times on COVID units over the course of the pandemic. Gia Lee has been a special education teacher for over 20 years in the New York City Department of Education and has served as a union chapter leader since 2005. She is a steering member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, or MORE. It's a caucus within the United Federation of Teachers, and she's a steering member of Black Lives Matter at Schools NYC. To start off, I'd like each of you to describe your work and uh, your current involvement with 
your union, um, as well as the kind of organizing you're currently involved with. So maybe we can just start with Elizabeth. Sure. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm really happy to be here. My work, um, I'm a registered nurse. Uh, I work in Chicago. I work at the, at the public sector safety net hospital in the city. And uh, I mean, the general state of work has been uh, long, and I think people are exhausted at this point um, in our day-to-day work. I work in what they call medical surgical telemetry, which is pretty basic nursing, but being in the safety net hospital, my patients and our patients are, you know, their acuity, as it's called, is, is high. And so there are a lot of black and brown patients, a lot of uninsured immigrant patients, um, and people who suffered a lot during the COVID pandemic and continue to suffer due to lack of access to health care over the last couple of years uh, in particular. People didn't come into the hospital, and but people are really quite sick. So um, the day-to-day work has been really hard. I mean, we've been, um, like I said, in you, you introduced me three rounds of COVID. I don't know what, what the winter will hold. Thankfully, we haven't gone into another surge yet. But, you know, we uh, fought back on those things. You know, uh, we went out and strike uh, in my hospital, in my system, um, for the first time in 40 years in June of 2021, which was a big deal. But even since that high point, we've really lost. I mean, we're, we're working very short, I will say. Um, uh, you probably heard a lot about the crisis in nursing and healthcare and people leaving. Um, and that's a, a stark reality. So um, a lot of the organizing we've been doing is about pushing our hospital system. And I know we're not the only ones to actually recruit and retain permanent staff. Um, I would say about 60% of our hospital has travelers or agency nurses, which are temporary workers throughout uh, all of the, the units. So it, it's been really hard. Um, and so we're trying to fight for them to our management to recruit people who are union nurses because we believe that that's the safest way to take care of our patients and the best way for us to take care of ourselves as well. So that's been a lot of the fight lately, plus a little bit of fighting back against union busting, which happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Gia? Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you both um, and everybody from Descent Magazine uh, for hosting us and for giving us the space to talk about what's going on um, with our lives. And I'm a special education teacher in the New York City Department of Education. Um, It's my 23rd year. And I really uh, took this year to take a sabbatical. It's a research sabbatical, but I also needed a reprieve um, from the grind. I'm definitely doing a lot of organizing right now, but the work that I do as a special education teacher, one of you know tens of thousands in New York City, it's the largest school district in the nation. We represent uh, uh, 1.2 million uh, students. It's massive. And with that comes all of the disparate inequities that we talk about, we read about, um, that Elizabeth's talking about, and the reason why we're here, uh, because I think the pandemic, and I've heard so many people say this, but it's so true, the pandemic, what it did was kind of expose this underbelly 
right? Um, expose everything and the stark disproportionality of um, access um, was really apparent. Uh, so during the pandemic, we saw educators and families literally go into survival mode. And those of means, I think they came out okay, even though there was a lot of loss. Um, but we had a lot of families, including some of our lowest paid staff, experience high levels of illness and death. And we're talking small children living in really cramped um, housing, multifamily, um, in one small apartment example. So organizing for uh, closures of the schools that we had to organize from the rank and file because our mayor was not trying to, uh, you know, shut down the schools in New York City at the time. And we threatened sick outs. And with that came equity and access for remote learning. We knew that uh, you're telling all the kids to learn from home, but they don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have the devices. So then cranking up the organizing around that um, and who's home, who's really able to be home to help their child. A lot of our little kids, I'm an elementary school teacher. A lot of my students were home alone and also helping their siblings because their parents had to go to work. They worked the grocery stores. They worked, um, you know, some of them worked in the hospitals and they had to be there. So um, did the best that we could. And out of that, you know, back to normal, we're talking about ventilation issues in these old buildings. Um, so that kind of organizing, and now we're seemingly post-COVID, but we're definitely not. New York City is seeing a ramp up of cases again. Uh, schools are asking people to wear masks because of the huge number of teachers, students who are out sick right now. Um, it's almost hitting another crisis point in New York City because people want to ignore the fact that uh disease spreads the way it does and we're not taking the necessary precautions um, as a city and doing the responsible thing. But we're also faced with a austerity mayor who loves his uh, privatization buddies in the healthcare industry, you know, and uh, education. So our organizing is literally to try to empower the people who've been, my God, like struggling and really trying to bring us this far, but feeling really resentful of just being completely ignored. Um, and also pretty much being told that their jobs are not essential and right-sizing the budget. So yeah, there's a lot going on. Oh, Eric Adams. Um, so I want to, I will get back to the question about organizing to close the schools in the first place, but before that, I wanted to, um, Teaching and nursing, it's not a surprise that we brought a teacher and a nurse together for this episode. Um, it's not a surprise that these are two professions we've heard a lot about. Um, I want to give a shout out to the nurses in the National Health Service in Britain who went on their first ever strike today, their first strike day. Um, these are not just American issues, not just New York and Chicago issues, um, but they are universal issues and they have a lot to do with the expectations we put on women in caring professions. Um, so I wanted to ask both of you to speak a little bit to the sort of gendered expectations that get put on you at the job. Um, Gia, do you want to start with this one? Sure. Yes, as educators, uh, it's probably around 85% of our working force are women who identify as women. We're mothers. We're, you know, the 
the people expected to nurture children um, in the schools. And yet we're probably one of, along with the nursing profession, the worst treated in in terms of um, expectations to do more with less, to sacrifice our time, our own money, um, to sacrifice in a way that feels like, yeah, you're expected to do that. Um, and it, what it it's doing is bringing people to a breaking point. Um, and you're, I'm seeing it across New York City, but across the country. And uh, people are leaving in droves, feeling really like, you know, just not cared for. Um, the very people caring for others are not being cared for. And so um, people will leave or we can organize and fight and try to make things better. So it's like this balance and we're trying to hold on to everyone, every single person. We need the collective. It's hard um, to do that. But yeah. I mean, for for nurses and for healthcare workers, um, and I just want to say as a nurse, I also see all of my coworkers who help a hospital system run, and that's across the entire country and world. It, it, it requires, just like in schools, everyone to make it happen. We've lost a lot of everyone. Like that, that whole, what is it? years and years of experience has just walked out the door, not only, you know, nurses, but, you know, our, our, our ward clerks, our, our environmental, our, you know, nurses, aides, all those people. So there's a lot of pressure on all of us to keep that going. And it's, it's, it's gut wrenching to see that leave because you, I don't think anybody who runs these hospitals or schools or this country realizes what they're actually doing by gutting these incredibly important primary institutions in this, in this world. And that's what COVID has done. So on to the question about as women, 80 to 90% of nurses are uh, women or non, non male identified. And, you know, we carried, we carried COVID on our backs. And, you know, I remember, and I've, you know, I've talked to Sarah on and off over the last couple of years about the experience of working on COVID units, um, about the experience of fighting back and what that meant. And a lot of what happens in our profession as in teaching is that you're silent. They expect a lot from you without any complaining, without anyone fighting, without really listening to us when we know how to do our work better than anybody else does. And that's what happens in society as a whole to women and non-gender identity, you know, non-binary people who are in these professions is not to listen to us. And um, I feel like that has been devastating, but it's also created a sense amongst my coworkers from the time that the pandemic struck and we were on a COVID unit to demanding that they listen to us and demanding that they actually pay attention to us and fighting them. They didn't expect us to fight. Healthcare workers are just supposed to work. You're supposed to work over. You're not supposed to, you know, clock out and keep working. Don't go home. Don't go see your family. Don't go see your kids. Come back the next day. Sacrifice. People are saying no more. 
We're not going to sacrifice for you anymore. We're not going to do it just because you think we are. And don't take advantage. And don't call us healthcare heroes, you know, three years ago and then treat us like garbage now. Like people, there's an anger I have never seen in my profession ever. And I just feel like it goes deeply into especially younger nurses who are like, we are not going to do this anymore. And we expect something from our employers. So it's both devastating and the expectation is high and they keep pushing us to keep trying to accept and give of ourselves. And there's a real, I think, struggle and tug and pull to fight that and say, we expect a lot more from you. And I know this is across a lot of workers, but it's really, I feel like, profoundly um, I, I was there, I, I feel, in, in, in nursing um, in particular, uh, from my experience. Yeah, Elizabeth and I have been kind of pandemic buddies. You were one of the first, uh, the belabored stories that we did at the beginning of the pandemic. And yeah, it's... Uh it's been it's been a lot, but it's been good to uh, keep up. Um, so I want to turn back to Gia, though, because I did want to ask about um, the organizing that Moore did in the early days of the pandemic, um, and yeah, and and right, what it took to close New York City public schools. With the the last mayor was not particularly interested in in um, shutting them down at first. Yeah, I think I, I don't know what you'd call it, and I I honestly you know, for myself, I really don't care what the reason was um, for holding out so long to shut down the schools. Um, I think it had something to do with business and commerce and people going to work um, to make money. And at the bottom line of things, lives are way more important. Um, And what really, for us, what we were seeing in the schools in the Bronx, it kind of started, um, Teachers were reaching out to the union leadership saying, we have five people out sick. At that time, if you recall, there weren't necessarily tests. The tests that could test for COVID, right, that they said were legitimate. There was all this like controversy over whether or not it was really testing for it. But people were getting sick and entire um, staffs and classrooms were where kids were calling out sick. But when people called the union leadership they would defer to the city, to the mayor to call, you know, to shut down the school. And there was no protocol. So people were feeling desperate. A couple of weeks went by. Uh, we started holding emergency meetings. It wasn't happening with the union leadership, unfortunately. We were holding emergency meetings. I remember, you know, we're on Zoom right now. We opened up four more Zoom accounts and opened up uh, ones that where we could hold 500 people. And the first emergency, a whole group emergency meeting that we held could not hold the number of people trying to get in. That's how desperate rank and file teachers were feeling about not showing up to work that Sunday or that Monday. And when we started to talk about uh, organizing sick outs that Monday, it was like the weekend of the 13th, March 13th. Um, we knew that there were people that were probably not uh, teachers, people maybe from the city, et cetera, who got into the meeting. And we were sharing information and then going back into our schools and holding emergency Zoom meetings with our staff, our colleagues, to say some of us even had administrators on because they were worried. Um, 
and we're on board with like everybody just stay home on Monday. And by Sunday night, the mayor announced that he was shutting down the schools. But we were already like, okay, when the time comes at exactly this time, we're all calling out. That's that was the plan. Um, so that's a little bit about um what led to it. It took a couple weeks, but it happened really quick. And that was an organizing issue that everyone felt very deeply <laughs> and it was widely felt and it continued on. It definitely um, continued on because they expected us to basically build a plane while flying it. Um, meanwhile, and prioritizing teaching and learning over checking in on our families to see how they were doing in terms of, do you have enough food? Do you need, do you have, uh, you know, are you safe at home? We had, a, we have homeless students. We don't know what their living conditions were. Um, we wanted to first check in with basic necessities and, um, health and safety. And the big push was to get those Google classrooms going and, you know, start taking attendance and all. And we had to push back on that too. It was wild. It was really, really wild. Yeah. Yeah. Going on from, Going, moving forward from that uh, that place where you were just sort of trying to build the plane as you were flying it, as you said, um, can you talk about how your organizing changed uh, once teachers started working remotely, and sort of how uh, you know how things changed once Zoom became not only sort of your workplace but also um, the way that you communicated with other union members? How did you? reach out to people? How did you keep people engaged and how did you keep um, momentum going when you had to deal with new challenges that came up um, and you weren't seeing each other in the actual school space anymore? I think more caucus was positioned and we had enough years in where we had some structures in place. Um, You know, we had uh, chat groups going that blew up. You know, we had numerous uh, regionally based uh, chats going. Um, we were like, you want to join? Here's the link. Come on in. And uh, social media, we already had a social media platform where people were following. So we were posting things and posting information when our union was not. Even, you know, we were saying, okay, we're not waiting for them to figure stuff out. We're going to do this ourselves. We have to save us. And um, we'd like in other places, uh, similar caucuses where we have friends who are teachers, I'm sorry, not teachers, nurses, or work in transportation. And we would try to coordinate um, information to say, you know, this is what they're, we're hearing from over here. So we were sharing out information, the rates of COVID uh, in different parts of the city, um, where there were hospitals that were seemed to be overloaded, just you name it. People were sharing resources and that sense of community caused our caucus to blow up. People just leapt into leadership like I'd never seen. And it was, I mean, if there's anything you know positive to come out of this, it was watching people who had been kind of, you know, in the schools and, you know, sacrificing, um, keeping their heads down a little bit, just say, you know what, enough's enough. We have to take matters into our own hands and we're not going to be able to do this by ourselves. We need to reach out to one another, um, make decisions together as democratically as possible, and then create the spaces. We had whole groups of people organizing phone zaps. Phone zaps were like 
someone made a slideshow and on Zoom, anyone who wants to do a coordinated call to the to the city offices about these issues, COVID rates happening in District 15 in Brooklyn, for example, or you know, Sunset Park, we'd be like, okay, let's do a phone zap over there. Those calls got flooded and people were learning how to organize or take action. Um, and then we did a lot of organizer trainings on Zoom, modified trainings that we would normally typically have in person. And some of us quickly adapted. I think that was the great thing about being a teacher. We kind of have the pedagogy and we take things and adapt it onto Zoom somehow. But um, people's creativity really came out and leadership, um, a sense of collectivity, collectivity that has really brought us to this place now, um, taking on and continue, continuing to really take on the issues that we continue to face. But there are definitely um, a lot of obstacles <laughs> still. Elizabeth, if I can, uh, we're going to take you back to the harrowing early days of the pandemic now. Sorry. Um, but uh, right around the time that schools were shutting down, uh, hospitals were sort of going into overdrive. And I think, you know, a lot of us remember when nurses were struggling to just get enough masks or they were worried they would run out of ICU beds and just the basic resources that they needed for protection. So um, can you talk about how you went about trying to organize for stronger protections at work and what kind of resistance uh, you met with, whether it was from hospital administrators or maybe just, um, you know, just a breakdown in the system? And um, are there any examples that stick out to you about how you're sort of able to overcome those challenges uh, in the midst of a crisis? Yeah, uh, I, I think the the pandemic and taking me back to that is the beginning of, like Gia was saying, of activating people in a way that um, I had never seen before inside my hospital. And I think that happened across our profession. Um, with strikes being the most recent, I think, manifestation of that. But in the beginning, in the early days, in March, um, it, we began to organize because the hospitals were completely unprepared. Obviously, we were under an administration with Trump who was completely in denial that anything was necessary to protect people in their workplaces. Um, and my union and my coworkers, uh, would not give an inch on that. And um, first of all, because it was about us going into COVID rooms. And second of all, it was about us protecting each other, our families and our patients. Um, because uh, really, like when I say that they didn't want to listen to us and that sort of blindness to in particular uh, women talking about what needed to happen, we were far smarter about what needed to happen and far more aware. You know, we had evidence-based practice. We were reading. The union was providing it. And they said, you need to fight for this. And we knew that. And so um, one of our earliest fights was really around N95 masks, which um, I remember talking a lot about. We did actually have them, you know, their box, they come in big boxes. Uh, we had ready access to them one day. And I came in. A couple of days later, they were all gone. They had locked them up. Um, and they had done this in hospitals all over because of, you know, the lack of production. Um, you know, we live in a society, capitalism, that doesn't, like, 
it had not really prepared for something like this, although everybody in the hospital had been kind of talking about COVID coming from different places in the world, like the doctors talking, the nurses talking. Um, and so our antennas were up and we had a huge fight around N95 masks um, to demand that nurses actually had access, that we had the key to give those masks to people to go into rooms. You know, there are, I'm sure people had read the stories about, you know, reusing masks, wearing bandanas, let's just put some plastic bags on, that was in New York. I mean, I'm part of a network of nurses um, through Labor Notes that is now healthcare workers, where we talk about all the things going on across the country. It was insane. And, you know, New York was particularly frightening because it was the epicenter. So I had a friend of mine who's in Nisna, um, his name's Sean. He was on the front of one of the New York daily newspapers with like just a mask on and he works in the Bronx. It was like a surgical mask. You can't do that when you go into a COVID room. So the fight that we had in Chicago was I, my chief steward at that time worked in the emergency room and she did many sit down strikes in the hospital, in the emergency room, because they had an incident in which the N95s were knocked up, were locked up. They had patients coming in who couldn't breathe. You have to intubate those people immediately and that's what we were doing with COVID patients, but we didn't have access to the masks. She refused to stand for that. And so she would go into the break room with a group of nurses who were supposed to be working on patients coming in. We work in the busiest hospital in the state of Illinois. Um, we see probably over 300 people a day. Everyone who comes in the doors gets seen. And so uh, she took, you know, it wasn't a large group of nurses, but they refused, they took a break. And the managers would come by and go, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're taking a break until you decide to give us N95 masks. Oh, and the doctors can't do their jobs without nurses. So they were like, could you give the nurses and the rest of us the N95? So that rippled throughout the hospital. And then we had large fights as well around all sorts of PPE, you know, gowns. They were telling us to reuse the gowns. You know, you would have discussions that are nonsensical with people who are in management. Like, well, what should I, well, you can use one. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with it when I come out of the room? Hang it outside the room? Hang it inside the room? Like, this is everywhere. And so we got, and we got the quality of the gowns that we needed, too. Like, they had to be of a certain quality. We demanded head covers and foot covers. I know it sounds crazy that we had to demand that. But we went to the public with some of us just wearing shower caps. We said, we bought these at Walgreens because they wouldn't give it to us. And we put, did press conferences and embarrassed the people that we worked for who are, happen to be politicians in the city because of it being public sector. So that was the fight. And that, that really was the precursor to us going into our contract campaign before our strike. So it really got people going. And it was an incredible fight. And it energized people um, to know that what we had to say and what we needed came first, not the priorities of the hospital system, who literally said to us, we just didn't want the union and the nurses to have control over the PPE. And we were like, thanks. We aren't going to listen to you anymore. Yeah. Um, so I had a question about the um, conversations you were having with other healthcare workers, but actually I want to ask you to talk about the strike. Sure. I mean, the strike, um, it's pretty unusual in public sector health for nurses to go out on strike, although nurses strike a lot these days. They're striking right now in the UK. <laughs> right. And they're striking right now. They almost struck in 
the Twin Cities in Duluth uh, about two weeks ago. They almost struck in Northern California at Kaiser. It's nonstop um, and has been. So, yeah, I mean, UK, the stuff in the UK is reflective of exactly all the stuff we're going through, right? Um, and so it was both about money, but it was also about recruitment. And it was about bringing more, like I said, what our fight continues to be, more nurses into um, hiring people because the stability of a system is based on people who actually, you know, devote their lives to a particular place, you know, and that's, and being union nurses, it was really important for us to, with, with good benefits, with stable work environment, with a way to fight back, like a voice, rather than being without a voice and being disciplined, we wanted more of those people inside. And so the, the strike was interesting because um, on the heels of fighting for PPE, um, we, <laughs> a group of us, very energized, went and we, we brought our demands to the upper management of the hospital. And uh, they retaliated very hard against us. Uh, they tried to fire five of our nurses. We, we, it was Halloween. We brought them uh, 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 some dead flowers and a plastic rat, and they didn't like that. It was partly how we were trying to kind of celebrate and say, hey, send a message, like, you know, take care of your own. And they, they didn't like that. So they retaliated, tried to fire five of us. And people, we fought back, <laughs> and uh, it was in the, in the Chicago Tribune. We, they did an expose on why would you fire nurses in the middle of a pandemic, and that just led people, we, we won against them and it was pretty outstanding. And so the strike, uh, we struck in June of the next year and really that, what happened to our five nurses set off another round. <laughs> just feel like we've been fighting a lot. It's been nonstop with periods of like exhaustion and regrouping. Um, but I mean, everybody in the hospital, um, mobilized. And the thing that was interesting was that no, but the, we didn't have organizers inside because of the pandemic. So they couldn't go in the hospital. So it was us. So we had all the WhatsApps going. We were the ones going around getting the strike authorization votes. We were the ones with the Q and A sheets going. People had no idea what you do in a strike. They hadn't struck for four decades. They're like, so do I go into work or not? Like you just had to explain basics to people, but we had a united strike in a way that was incredibly powerful. Our management underestimated us. They thought that, you know, they enjoined us and they thought they would get more workers by the judge going in their favor and they didn't. And, you know, we had managers having to run units of 26 patients with some agency scabs. And after one day they were like, okay, they told us they didn't have money. They wanted to double our health care. In one day, they flipped that. We got money. Oh, we found money. <laughs> oh, we're not going to do so much around the healthcare. And they wanted us back. And it was pretty. It was a pretty monumental moment. And I just remember one of my coworkers, who's a younger nurse and someone shyer. Uh, my manager tried to intimidate her to come in and say, "Hey, you're on the list to actually be enjoined to come in." And the immediate thing she did was to call me and say, is that true? And I said, no, it's not true. And she's like, good, I want to strike. And she was there the next day. So that's, I, I hope that's, I mean, there's a lot of time in there, but kind of gives you the overview of the strike. 
I really, really love the dead flowers and the plastic wrap. That's all. I'm really excited about this. We're going to have to talk more about this one. <laughs> It'll be our next Descent t-shirt. Um, so, uh, Gia, can you talk about uh, the the way that, you know, after schools had closed and been closed for a long time, uh, teachers often became the targets of public criticism or political pressure um, during the debate over when and how to reopen schools? Yes. So, man, it I still have scars from that. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of PTSD from, you know, at the core of this is a question of, you know, how do we make sure that we take care of the most vulnerable in our society, those who are uh, the most, um, you know, health-wise prone to sickness and um, our kids with asthma uh, and other health conditions that predispose them to ending up in the ICU or the NICU or, you know, for their siblings, which we had at my school. So we did, when they were trying to push us initially, it was really shady. Um, and the, the year, so we shut down in March and then the following school year, there was very little time. We heard very little from the DOE, from the Department of Education, from the mayor's office about what was to happen in the fall. So we were starting to ask questions. We need to, if we're going to be remote, we need to start planning now. We need time. If we're going to be in person, we need to start planning now, not, you know, at the end of August even, um, but still crickets. And what we found was we needed to have these conversations with the parents and the students because there were parents who were like, we will go because we want to protect the most vulnerable. We want to make sure that um, the staff and the students who are, you know, uh, going to be in danger of coming back in person have an option to be remote. So we had to have these discussions at schools where this didn't happen. There was incredible pressure from the Department of Education to open. So we had administrators and they were predominantly in the poor districts out in East Brooklyn, in um, the Bronx and parts of Queens, uh, Staten Island and Manhattan, like in Harlem, where there was a lot of pressure and administrators who felt like they didn't have any recourse but to follow directions and paints a pretty picture to parents about how they were going to make the building safe for the students. So more kicked into high gear with some parent groups who were like, no, you're giving us false information. We are hearing about poorly ventilated buildings, not enough uh, PPE or testing. And we looked to Los Angeles. UTLA had the gold standard in terms of negotiating with their district, uh, the safest possible conditions for returning back to school, um, hybrid or otherwise. We were talking to our um, more as part of a national network called UCOR. And we're listening, we're going on to meetings with each other over Zoom um, to figure out how are people strategizing, organizing to prepare for the fall. And sure enough, like we did, we learned a lot, but um, there was still this rhetoric uh, that it was safe, that they were going to make it safe. Um, and provide everything that schools needed. We did not have nearly the testing. It was random. 
uh, 10% of the kids per week. Um, and often it would be the same students. So having and offering a hybrid version or remote for those families um, that opted for remote, it was tough. There was definitely a polarized divide. There were schools that were just going full steam ahead and they would end up actually having to shut down multiple times in the school year because COVID cases would go rampant. The schools where we kind of organized to create a remote version or hybrid or whatever, um, we were able to avoid as, as many, I looked at the numbers, as many school closures or classroom closures but we tended to have the most tension between staff and parents, especially in more affluent neighborhoods where the parents were like, open the schools up. So there, there was definitely a parent group that was really nasty and didn't care. They're like, we're doing, we're taking all the precautions. We'll get our kids, you know, all the PPE we will pay for all the testing. You know, they have the money to do that. We're like, not all the schools have that. You cannot impose a citywide policy and expect everybody to have equity around that. So, yeah. And then we still live with the, those tensions today. Yeah. Elizabeth, um, just to bring you up to our present day, um, how are nurses currently navigating the changing public health guidance around uh, infection control and uh, especially as sort of infection rates and COVID cases are kind of ebbing and flowing and politicians are um, constantly trying to act as if the pandemic is over. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess uh, at a time when people think that we're, a lot of people think that we're sort of past the pandemic, um, how do you and other healthcare workers um, deal with the pressures and tensions that are arising when um, you know you're dealing with patients and politicians and hospital administrators who don't really quite grasp that the pandemic is still happening? I mean, um, I think that we it comes back to. Um, what we need to do to keep ourselves safe. So, and us having to do it for ourselves. So there's a lot like the CDC on, on top of politicians and hospital administrators, just totally politically motivated. Right. Um, and I think that people thought that things would change more significantly than they did from Trump to Biden. So we were sitting here going, okay, at least, you know, you're talking about a man who's like, take hydroquarquin or bleach or, and you're like, what, this guy is a loon, right? There's nothing there. And the CDC, you know, you have Dr. Fauci being ignored and all these sorts of things. And then you get Biden and you're like, oh, at least vaccines are something that people will see as being a solution and, or, a, you know, a huge mitigating factor in help. And that's the extent to which it went, <laughs> Whereas in the hospitals, we still wear masks every day. I mean, I wear an N95 every day because the other complication, I got COVID in the hospital. Um, I was out for 18 days, but they will no longer pay for healthcare workers, anybody in the hospital. If you get COVID, it comes out of your sick bank as of March of last year. But that's what happens when the CDC said, let's roll it back. 
And when Biden said, let's, you know, a lot of that had to do with the schools, too. Like the schools had to reopen and there were big battles in New York. I know there was a big battle here in Chicago with teachers about like getting people back to work, getting the economy going. And so I don't think it's disconnected from the tensions we feel about, okay, well, we don't have to wear masks anymore. We don't have to protect ourselves. So the way we continue to deal with that is to continue to do what makes us as safe and protected as possible. Luckily, our hospital still maintains a mask requirement and is currently limiting the number of visitors coming in, which makes you feel better because unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of our patient population are people who are most affected by COVID and now the flu and their kids with RSV. Like those are the triple things that are in every hospital right now. Um, And you both want those people to feel safe as well as the people who work there who are part of those communities to also feel safe. And so, you know, it's not easy. In Chicago, because our numbers are low, we're not even supposed to be wearing masks in the hospital, they say. Well, no longer need that. And it's crazy. So people wear masks when uh, we have COVID patients. Um, They no longer test COVID patients past about 10 days. So if you're asymptomatic and um, you had COVID, uh, they will take patients off of isolation. But we don't know, really, honestly, the science has not been developed enough, even in the last three years, to know how, when do you stop being infected, right? When can you pass this on to your coworkers or other people that you're around? So people do wear gowns and gloves. And so we have access to those things. Luckily, it's not being denied to us, but it's very confusing. I think. And it also doesn't, it's angering too, right? Like I get it. Everybody wants the thing to be over. Nobody wants to wear the mask, but it also is about a society. I feel like that, that didn't really see this as being the thing that needed to be done from the beginning to keep us safer and bring our COVID numbers down. So it, I guess to answer your question, it's, we do the best we can to keep ourselves safe and our coworkers safe, but it's complicated and it also makes us pretty angry, too. Yeah. So I see we've got some questions in the Q&A, which is really great. I'm going to steal moderator's privilege and ask one more question of both of my guests here. Because um, the thing that Elizabeth was alluding to there a little bit is that um, when you are the person who's going back into these workplaces where you're responsible for other people's health and well-being, that puts a toll on your ability to, quote unquote, go back to normal. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like, you know, when everybody else is like, yay, lockdown's over, we don't have to wear masks. And you're still thinking about wearing masks every day. You're still thinking about what we have to, what you have to do in order to not get sick yourself, not bring it home to your friends, um, and protect the people in the hospital, whether or not they take it seriously. So Elizabeth, I'm going to kick this back to you and then to Gia. I mean, the, It's really uh, a lot of us in the same way that I I mean, Gia said that people it's it's very um, it's incredibly hard. A lot of us have PTSD. A lot of us don't like there's enormous responsibility. People, every one of my coworkers, nobody took any of what happened with COVID lightly. We like we you know, I saw people and you're trying to figure this all out. And but we took responsibility for that. 
And it was nurses, it was doctors, it was everybody trying to figure out how to take care of the human beings that were in our, in our units and in our hospitals and it weighed on people. And so it's been, it's, I just, there's an emotional and psychological damage that I just don't think people are going to get over anytime soon. That's why people are leaving in droves too. They're like, I am done. I am done and I can't do this anymore. And it just, the thing that holds me there is I have a union and I have my coworkers who are, I mean, and I'm losing them, but there's at least a force I feel like that can, that coalesces us together. But there's a lot of what, what, you know, my, my, my union calls it a, a moral injury. And what they mean by that is that the society could, and the meaning the hospital and the society as a whole is failing to provide what it could provide for each of us to adequately take care of the human beings we take care of. It has the resources. It just doesn't want to give it to you. And it it's denying that this thing continues to exist. Like the normalization of COVID, there's still not a cure for it. It's not like, t- you know what I mean? Like there, there aren't, there are vaccines, but it, it, it puts a lot of weight on people um, and continues to do that. And, and I'm not sure how people are going to be able to get over that. I just think there's a deep, deep uh, damage that has happened um, to, to people in healthcare um, over the last couple of years because of it and the denying of what, how to, of, of, of really what's happening um, in, in our workplaces. So, Thank you. Um, so, yeah, we're going to... Wait, wait, let's let Gia answer that one too. Oh, sorry, Beth. Yeah, sure, in the schools, um, in terms of COVID, I guess, you know, we see it in broader conversations uh, that we see this as institutionalized racism. And uh, it... it harkens back to every single injustice going back to, you know, colonialism and that uh, you don't lose hope. I've heard from my mentors reminding me constantly, hope is a discipline and um, you do, and you continue to organize, you continue to create the spaces um, that people need to connect and not uh, fall into the the competitive framing of things. Um, they, you know, whether or not the powers that be um, are creating a survival of the fittest situation, you know, that's, we can go on about, on and about that, those kinds of conspiracies. What's most important is what are people looking out to? We look out to each other for power. We have to stop looking up. Power is out, power in numbers. And um, so then when it comes to masking, when it comes to fighting for, you know, whatever issues we want, we look out to each other and we figure out a way. So if our community is feeling like we need to remask, let's look out, let's talk to each other, ask questions, listen to each other, because the hierarchical structure of our institutions are designed to, you know, kind of placate and not listen. Like Elizabeth was saying they don't listen. 
um, particularly in professions where women dominate. But yet everyone's health, everyone's being comes through education, comes through the school system, comes through and out of like being cared for and taken care of in our medical care system. So um, that's where I feel like our answers are and continue to do that work. Thank you. And we are going to go into our Q&A, our audience Q&A section now. So, um, and yes, uh, our first question comes from JT and it's also uh, related to what we were just talking about with sort of the long-term impacts on the workforce and how many people are being sort of pushed out of their jobs um, because of the impact of COVID. Um, You're both in fields that have... uh, big labor shortages um, or what is framed as large labor shortages in your workforce. So how does that affect uh, your organizing and sort of how you, uh, how you sort of wield leverage when you're going up against employers? So um, Elizabeth, do you want to start? Sure. Um, It's uh, the labor shortages are profoundly brave um, in I know, for example, I, I said it earlier, about 60%. After our strike, <laughs> we were very strong. And then there was both, and we were told this by our union, there would be retaliation for what we did, um, as well as it, which is true, but it, it was also coupled with this oddity, right? Um, because of, we were already short of nurses and healthcare workers going into the pandemic. And then, and the conditions were so bad and they just got exponentially worse. So it's been a real challenge to organize and fight as, and it's a question, not just for obviously my hospital, but um, in the network that I mentioned earlier that we participate in, it's like, people are like, how, how can we keep going? Like, how do you keep organizing without, people becoming completely exhausted because there's fewer of us and more um, sort of contingency or temporary staff coming in, like in waves. Um, and so it, it, it has been extraordinarily difficult to try to keep people who are exhausted sort of steady and also organize with fewer people. Um, and, uh, you know, one of our most recent battles around recruitment and retention, thankfully we brought a team back together after the strike, um, and, uh, earlier this year and, uh, people are very committed to fighting and have been nonstop fighting for money to be put into, um, in our, in the system here, in the public health system here. Uh, to have bonuses and recruitment, you know, retention pay put in. Um, our bosses who are politicians gave themselves a 10% raise. So that helps to drive people. Like if you can give yourself a 10% raise, but you aren't putting money to recruit and retain nurses into the public health system, there's, an, there's a big issue there. And I will say that anger drives people, even though, like I said, there are big periods of just exhaustion and regrouping that cannot be sort of just overcome. Right. And so, and I'm not quite sure where we're going to be honest with you, because I don't know how we're going to be able to, this is a question I have for my union and, and a lot of my colleagues and 
everybody in healthcare and it goes to educators and everybody else. Like young nurses do not want to accept less. They are not going to, they want to be paid a certain amount of money. There are people have accepted really poor working conditions unless those things begin to change substantively. People just won't accept a, a job in a public hospital for the pay that we're offering and with the working conditions. So I'm not sure how we're going to do that. I mean, one of the answers somebody or a suggestion somebody came up with was we need to organize these temporary workers into <laughs> unions. And, you know, I think there's an open live discussion about that, but I'll say there are a lot of challenges um, right now and we're still trying to come up with answers. Leveraging staffing shortages um, to me is like, that's the key. If we have a shortage that gives us leverage to organize, to take action, to be like, okay, you know, um, New York City, there's a Taylor law. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it makes striking quote unquote illegal. I, you know, say there's no such thing as an illegal strike, but um, it's absolutely, you know, talking to educators in Kentucky, in Los Angeles and Chicago and Minneapolis, Minnesota, like all these different places. The one thing that they, we all share staffing shortages, people leaving in droves. And that's something to definitely leverage in terms of when we go to the negotiating table, like right now, um, New York City, con- our public sector contracts expired in September, you know, and we're looking at our union leadership, particularly for more because we don't hold quote unquote leadership of our union saying, why aren't we leveraging the fact that you can't pay people enough money to come work as a teacher and you're cutting people's, you're cutting our budget. So we have nothing to lose right now. And that's, you know, kind of maybe a strategy that we could take on. Yeah. So I'm going to combine two of the questions we have here because I think they're very similar. Um, asking a question about, um, so from Sally Open, Owen, we have a question about um, any unions campaigning for COVID mitigations, um, bringing back masks, isolation, testing, ventilation, and air filters. And Nikki's question um, about schools and hospitals, the next step being clean air, upgrading of HVAC systems. Um you know more about this than I do, Nikki, um, and possibly far UVC overhead. I don't know what that means, but um, how is this to come about? So these are questions about sort of unions specifically campaigning for very particular mitigations. Um, I don't know if either of you know anything about either of these or um, want to talk more about the organizing you're doing in your unions. Gia, you look like you have a thought. I could say right now, I don't know of any unions doing that kind of work, but I do know like in New York City, it's kind of school by school. Just because like in the last couple of weeks, there'd be like half of the staff is out sick and it could be COVID. It could be that flu, that triple, you know, um, whammy right now that we're going through. Um, so I am hearing about individual locations and sites um, in schools. I don't. I hearing and starting to get pulled into questions about how can we join this to bring, make it broader so that, you know, maybe it's in the works. I mean, in the hospitals in my union, we never actually gave up any of those mitigating factors. We've never stopped it. We said you have to actually, vaccines are just the beginning. 
right? But it isn't, as I said before, maybe I didn't complete all it. It's not the end-all be-all the way it was actually made to be by Biden and the CDC and every, like then we can take off the masks and everything. Um, my union's always maintained that you need multiple mitigation factors, which is why people still maintain those, like I said, within our hospitals. We thought that here in Chicago, if, as according to the city, we were at low, like our COVID numbers were low, and then the hospital, it was on the news, well, then in, even in hospitals, you don't need to wear masks. I said, let them go ahead and bring it. I swear, we will, people, healthcare workers would have fought for that because we, we do it regardless. And so um, I don't know. And then we'll also see what happens come the winter because it's true that the vaccines around the, um, the variants seem to be effective, but, you know, we can't say that 100%. And so it's going to be very important that people, you know, if we get another surge and the flu is terrible this year as it was last, it's just when you don't have the natural immunity of having a mask off, right? People are coming in very sick from the flu. And then the RSV is, I mean, it is inundating pediatric hospitals and parts of hospitals where peds young children are, and it's all over the schools. So we'll have to see what actually happens over the course of the winter. Um, and, you know, we're really just at the beginning of that. So um, it, it, it may come back again. But I think for healthcare unions, we haven't dropped those things. It's yeah. just not as much in the forefront. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody else has had this, but I've had like two really awful colds just right in a row that I was like, how can this not be COVID? But it's just like, oh, I've just forgotten what it's like to be sick. And apparently my body has forgotten how to fight it off. Also, you know, getting older. Um, but following from that, Elizabeth, I did want to loop back to the question I wanted to ask earlier, which is um, that, you know, you're part of a union that has been one of the leaders on the fight for universal health care. Um, and I know you've been in contact with nurses around the country and around the world. Um, has anything changed about um, how you think about and organize around Medicare for All, universal health care now? My thoughts around it have gotten that we need it more now than ever before. And I just don't know how we're going to get there because it seems, I mean, the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, well, the whole system's broken. Like the fact that we had to fight for the basics that we had to fight for and the fact that COVID was so rampant, every, it was, you know, like I said about New York, New York was frightening, not, you know, I mean, I, but everywhere was. And so it was like, we need to change this. And um, I think what's changed is to, it, it has to be, and I think there are openings for this that particularly amongst other groups of healthcare workers like young doctors. That's shifting. It was shifting. The idea that we need to actually have this, this system can't continue to go on profit the way it is anymore. That is the driving factor. That's why COVID was handled the way that it was handled in this country. And so slowly but surely there are people that are, I mean, they're very open to that idea. It's just about how do we begin to mobilize it? I think it's difficult right now because it doesn't seem like it's on the table the way it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Like people aren't talking about it in the same kind of way. And we really need to get back to that. Um, and 
with all the healthcare strikes that have happened, I could, I was trying to look up the numbers before I came on for this, but as of the spring of this year, there have been 80 healthcare strikes over the course of the pandemic, which is pretty phenomenal to me. A lot of the, and then there were some larger scale potential strikes as well that could have happened later this year. There's a lot of power there. Yeah. um, Last spring, um, Connor Lewis and I noted that like a lot of the nurses strikes and hospital strikes were like just under the number of people that the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually tracks. So a lot of them were getting missed, but they were like 700 workers, 800 workers. Um, So we were trying to catch that because like the BLS only counts strikes of over a thousand people. So it's, yeah, a lot of these hospitals are sort of just under that. Right. And there's been increasing numbers of unionization amongst both nurses, but doctors as well. I mean, that's significant because people, just as the wave has hit everyone, like that's a level of protection, but that's a demand that can be made coupled with strikes and increased numbers of unionization amongst healthcare workers. I think that's the real power because frankly, if people didn't, if those strikes went forward and they shut things down, just like with my hospital for that one day, they lose enormous amounts of money. And, you know, that's something to be said about how we begin to talk about shifting to something different in this country, which we desperately need. Yeah. One of the many ironies of COVID, like after living through the pandemic, people are talking less about universal health care now. Like, how does that how does that work? Um, so for the next Q&A question uh, from an anonymous attendee is about Who's talking about COVID still? Um, I hear a lot of people saying that most working people don't care about COVID anymore, or that it's mostly out-of-touch elites who still care about COVID. So what do you say to that sort of argument uh, when people are basically saying, you know, um, oh, you know, it's only uh, it's only overly sensitive, privileged people who care about the pandemic still? That's not true. <laughs> That's what I say to that. Um, I guess for me, I just right now, the conversations I have in, um, amongst public school educators is this situation in the schools where kids and staff, um, are getting sick in droves. Uh, just the other day, um, one of my colleagues told me 14 people were out in a small school, a small school of maybe 50 staff, 14 people out. And in the classrooms, uh, some of them are half and people started to look at the numbers from last year uh, with Omicron, which hit around this time of year. I got really sick with Omicron last year when we were saying it's time to shut the school down again. Um, it's happening. Those those numbers are ticking up and uh, with positive cases. And if it's not COVID, it's uh, just the other uh, flu-like symptoms that are really hitting hard that are causing people to be out for not just a week. It's some of them 14 days. I have a colleague who tested positive for nine days straight. I didn't follow after follow up with her afterwards to see how for, much further it was going, but um, people still are very much caring about this and in particularly disproportionately the poor districts in our city um, who do not have a platform, who do not get their voices um, out on the media and it's not covered at all. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, that argument is, it, I'll see what she has said. It's not true. Like just anecdotally, the people who have told me, I just got COVID. I just got COVID. I just tested positive. It's on your Facebook feed. It's, it's still, it's a very much part of people's everyday life. And it's terrifying. People can't sit back and tell me. I was terrified. I got it early on. Um, and, you know, when we were just trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And for everybody, even though there are no drugs you can take as well to mitigate it in the beginning, that's still debilitating. And it's worse in environments like schools where there's a lot of, you know, younger children, you know, just people in close proximity to each other. And so that sort of idea, I I realize that it's, like I said, there's a lot of, of denial and it's hard, right? Um, Sarah and I had this conversation too, probably several months ago. It's like, people are like, well, I haven't had it. So, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, some conspiracy. It's not, it is so real. And you know, the people who are getting it, who do get it, are again, disproportionately those people who have poor health care access and maybe didn't get a vaccine, um, maybe don't speak English, you know, things like that, where it's, it's very much a part and parcel of the reality in the world. And, um, you know, hospitals have become sort of petri dishes for all these things coming in. And it's quite, quite frightening. So um, the moving on thing is hard because you see a lot of people not buying it, not wearing masks. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you, like, if you go, so I always wear masks. So I'm usually the odd person <laughs> out, but I don't care. And it's like, the reality is that it's been normalized so much. And frankly, you know, I'm not trying to, be a scaremonger, but COVID's just the beginning of whatever's going to be coming next, given what is going on in our world. Um, and so we really have to figure out how to take this, take it seriously, let people go through it and, and deal with the pain and, and deal with people's grieving around it. Uh, half a million people or more have died, right? They're out of the workforce. It's real. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the the idea that it's working people who have given up on COVID when it's working people who have overwhelmingly gotten sick and died um, is, you know, it's kind of a lot. I would be curious to see who's saying that, actually, because it sounds like a certain kind of reactionary um, brochal democracy that I really have very little time for. Um, it sounds like one of those, like, right-wing talk shows, like, people are saying, I think people are saying, like, the disembodied right. people. Right, Like, Like, who, people are always trying to ventriloquize the working class, right? Um, but as Gia was saying before, right, it was it was the rich parents who wanted to, like, rip everything up and off and reopen the schools, and that, like, poll after poll showed that, like, working class parents and parents of color were much more hesitant to send their kids back into the schools, largely because, and Nikki put in another comment about it sort of taking, requiring massive governmental funding to actually fix the ventilation in these places. And, you know, working class parents know that these buildings don't have the kind of ventilation that like maybe more affluent parents expect the schools they're sending their kids to to have. 
Um, they know that these are old buildings and that the funding hasn't been there. Um, and connected to that, I think Cornelius's comment about why is universal health care impossible and what is wrong with you Americans? Um, not us Americans, but um, American politics certainly is just so broken around this issue. And I think um, – but yeah, I, I – um, We've had some shout outs in the comments for the Death Panels podcast, and I've been really meaning to to get their book, Health Communism. Um, and yeah, because I do think that there's still a lot of people who would really love to be part of a conversation around universal health care. They're just we're so exhausted right now. Um, Michelle, did you want to ask our, our last uh, question there? Yes. Our final question as we close out, um, but as, as Elizabeth noted, it is just the beginning. But um, as we close out the panel, um, what are some things that give you hope? And how do we not just feel despair at all of this? I think we really need to end on this one <laughs> so that we can look forward to something. Anyone? Uh, Gia? Sure, I can go. Um, I said it earlier, and it was a mentor that said this to me as a labor organizer for over 50 years, that hope is a discipline. Um, and what gives me hope is, for example, uh, Sarah, there's a Sarah uh, in the chat who works with me in uh, the New York City Public Sector Rank and File Network that, I mean, there have been a few over the years, but this one forms out of the Labor Notes Conference in June. Um, our contracts expired. So under the same uh, similar set of values that we have about rank and file organizing, Um and not just replicating bureaucratic union, you know, ways of doing things. We really um, are digging our heels in and trying to figure out a way to connect and collectivize, which has really been a huge source of hope for me um, that we don't do this alone. Uh, there's no individual or individuals in any sector that can save us. Um, it's going to be the collective and it's a time tested truth that um, we cannot forget. We have some very amazing leaders and it's about finding them amongst the ranks and lifting them up. I really believe in uh, organizer trainings. Some of us have an affinity for it. We have some sense of organizing, but I think real um, concrete training is important so that we can get um, folks together and have strategies and tools and to not get dismayed when things go wrong, that we see it as this organic process. We see people leaving. That's an organic system. They're withholding their labor. It's too bad they quit, right? But in a way they withheld their labor. And um, how can we get folks to say, we can withhold our labor together at the same time <laughs> and in an organized way where we can try to inoculate ourselves and anticipate what we think the bosses are going to do or how they're going to react and kind of prepare ourselves for that, you know? Um, and I just want to put another plug. I've been working since September on my sabbatical with the early childhood workers in New York city who two days before school started, this is a certain group of educators um, instructional coordinators and social workers in New York City who were told two days before school started under this new administration that their positions were being eliminated. Now, these are the people who'd spent maybe a couple of decades in this profession in early childhood. Um, we had a 3K for all, 
universal child care in New York City. We're going headed in that direction. This current administration is seeking to dismantle that. And when these people were told, four to 600 of them, that their positions were being eliminated, they reached out. They're like, we're not just going to take this lying down. Um, I've been working with them. They were told it's inevitable. They were told that in September. They were told that in October, November. It's December. They're still in their positions. They organized. We lost some of them, but they organized. And that's the power. That's what gives me hope. It gives me chills. Um, and same thing I'm watching across the country. You know, It's amazing what the power of people can do, um, but we need concrete training, concrete strategizing. And yes, sometimes if we need to take a step back and regroup because you're exhausted and you have to take care of yourselves and your families and your loved ones, but you know that the work is ongoing and you get back on it. Yeah. I mean, I think um, similar to Gia and it's, it's a nice way of thinking about it, you know, that hope is a discipline, right? It, it takes that kind of Rigor. What I, I'm hopeful about is just, um, you know, for example, here in Chicago is uh, the power of solidarity and the power of seeing commonality, which I think the pandemic has broken down silos ac- amongst different groups of workers across industries to see that we have more in common than we have separate. So, if, for example, um, our hospital management recently started to attack, I said this at the very beginning, some of our key leaders um, and trying to f- fire them on trumped up charges. Um, and they were, they were outrageous. And this is happening in other nurses unions as well. Like in New York, I heard about as well, the current bargaining team um, for one of uh, Nisma's uh, contract uh, teams that are out. And so it's, it's a tactic. Obviously it's happening at Starbucks, right? It's something that they're trying to break the back of every person and every group of workers who are trying to actually organize themselves to create collective power. So I reached out, um, cause I know some folks in the CTU and I got a, a call from Jackson Potter, who's the vice president of the Chicago teachers union. And he said to me, what can I do to help? Call me. And then he sent out, they sent out an email to all their members to say, defend these nurses at Cook County, right, at my hospital. That was really powerful to me. And even though sometimes I get very exhausted with my work and it's frustrating for all of us, seeing that was really, and that's a powerful union in this country, in my estimation. And so just that simple reaching out and saying, we're together. And then we did a press conference and they were there on the same issue and they drop the charges against one of the nurses, at least one of the nurses. So that gives me hope. That's the, the commonality. And then what I see is a general fight back happening around this country. The places where I've seen fight happening the most have actually been in our workplaces, which is pretty profound when you think about it. We had a massive explosion around Black Lives Matter in 2020. We haven't seen that kind of unfortunately, large social movement around incredible, an issue that we have to have be taken up in this country again at that level. But in workplaces, people, group after group after group after group, grad students, everybody, you know, cultural workers, people are organizing because they're like, this is the only way to defend ourselves against our bosses. 
And frankly, now some people are drawing some conclusions like with the rail strike about the Democrats. I think that's good. It's not the end all, but that gives me hope because I think it's about us relying on ourselves. Like Gia was saying, it's, it's horizontal. It's not looking up. It's us. And we're the people who create all the wealth and all people say this. We're the people who make the society run. We should actually be able to have that power. And we're beginning to edge towards figuring out how to do that more together and talk about it and strategize. That gives me hope. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this year and the past nine years. As we noted at the beginning of the show, we're taking a brief break for the holidays and a little bit of time to regroup, and we will be back with you a little bit later on in 2023. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kinneborough, who is leaving us with this show. Goodbye, Colin, and thank you very much for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for listening to us sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us as long as Twitter continues to live, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever app you are using to get your podcasts on. It really does help us find new listeners, plus saying nice things about us is always free. Special thanks, though, once again, to all of you who have supported the show financially over the past nine years, over at the Descent website or now at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. Thank you for helping us keep this podcast going. We know literally everyone is asking for your money at the end of the year, so we just wanted to say thank you to everyone who gives or has given. And if you want to share your story of working or organizing or not working, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a teacher or a nurse, a warehouse worker or an Uber driver, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too, once again, for as long as Twitter lasts, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.